Book the Fifth, Part Twelve of A Laodicean by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book the Fifth, Part Twelve. It was a fine afternoon of late summer, nearly three months subsequent to the death of Sir William de Stancy and Paula's engagement to marry his successor in the title. George Somerset had started on a professional journey that took him through the charming district which lay around Stancy Castle. Having resigned his appointment as, as architect to that important structure, a resignation which had been accepted by Paula through her solicitor, he had bidden farewell to the locality after putting matters in such order that his successor, whoever he might be, should have no difficulty in obtaining the particulars necessary to the completion of the work in hand. Hardly to his surprise, this successor was Havel. Somerset's resignation had been tendered in no hasty mood. On returning to England, and in due course to the castle, everything bore in upon his mind the exceeding sorrowfulness, he would not say humiliation, of continuing to act in his former capacity for a woman who, from seeming more than a dear friend, had become less than an acquaintance. So he resigned. But now, as the train drew on into that once beloved tract of country, the images which met his eye threw him back, in point of emotion, to very near where he had been before making himself a stranger here. The train entered the cutting on whose brink he had walked when the carriage containing Paula and her friends surprised him the previous summer. He looked out of the window. They were passing the well-known curve that led up to the tunnel constructed by her father, into which he had gone when the train came by and Paula had been alarmed for his life. There was the path they had both climbed afterwards, involuntarily seizing each other's hands. The bushes, the grass, the flowers, everything just the same. Here was the pleasant place, and nothing wanting was save she, alas. When they came out of the tunnel at the other end, he caught a glimpse of the distant castle keep, and the well-remembered walls beneath it. The experience so far transcended the intensity of what is called mournful pleasure, as to make him wonder how he could have miscalculated himself to the extent of supposing that he might pass the spot with controllable emotion. On entering Markton Station, he withdrew into a remote corner of the carriage, and closed his eyes with a resolve not to open them till the embittering scenes should be passed by. He had not long to wait for this event. When again in motion, his eye fell upon the skirt of a lady's dress opposite, the owner of which had entered and seated herself so softly as not to attract his attention. Ah, indeed, he exclaimed as he looked up to her face. I had not a notion that it was you. He went over and shook hands with Charlotte de Stancy. I'm not going far, she said, only to the next station. We often run down in summer time. Are you going far? I'm going to a building further on, thence to Normandy by way of Cherbourg to finish out my holiday. Mr. Stancy thought that would be very nice. Well, I hope so, but I fear it won't. After saying that, Somerset asked himself why he should mince matters with so genuine and sympathetic a girl as Charlotte de Stancy. She could tell him particulars which he burned to know. He might never again have had an opportunity of knowing them, since she and he would probably not meet for years to come, if at all. Have the castle works progressed pretty rapidly under the new architect? he accordingly asked. "'Yes,' said Charlotte in her haste, then adding that she was not quite sure if they had progressed so rapidly as before. 
blushingly correcting herself at this point and that, in the tinkering manner of a nervous organisation aiming at nicety where it was not required. "'Well, I should have liked to carry out the undertaking to its end,' said Somerset, "'but I felt I could not consistently do so. "'Miss Power,' here a lump came into Somerset's throat, "'so responsive was he yet to her image, "'seemed to have lost confidence in me, "'and it was best that the connection should be severed.' "'There was a long pause. "'She was very sorry about it,' said Charlotte gently. "'What made her alter so? I never can think.' Charlotte waited again, as if to accumulate the necessary force for honest speaking at the expense of pleasantness. "'It was the telegram that began it, of course,' she answered. "'Telegram?' She looked up at him in quite a frightened way, little as there was to be frightened at in a quiet fellow like him in this sad time of his life, and said, "'Yes, some telegram, I think. Were you in trouble? Forgive my alluding to it, but you asked me the question.' Somerset began reflecting on what messages he had sent Paula, troublous or otherwise. All he had said had been sent from the castle, and were as gentle and mellifluous as sentences well could be, which had neither articles nor pronouns. "'I don't understand,' he said. "'Will you explain a little more, as plainly as you like, without minding my feelings?' "'A telegram from Nice, I think. "'I never sent one.' "'Well, the one I meant was about money.' Somerset shook his head. No, he murmured, with the composure of a man who, knowing he had done nothing of the sort himself, was blinded by his own honesty to the possibility that another might have done it for him. That must be some other affair with which I had nothing to do. Oh, no, it was nothing like that. The reason for her change of manner was quite different. So timid was Charlotte in Somerset's presence that her timidity at this juncture amounted to blameworthiness the distressing scene which must have followed a clearing up there and then of any possible misunderstanding terrified her imagination and quite confounded by contradictions that she could not reconcile she held her tongue and nervously looked out of the window i have heard that miss power is soon to be married continued somerset yes charlotte murmured it is sooner than it ought to be by rights considering how recently my dear father died but there are reasons in connection with my brother's position against putting it off, and it is to be absolutely simple and private. There was another interval. May I ask when it is to be? he said. Almost at once, this week. Somerset started back as if some stone had hit his face. Still, there was nothing wonderful in such promptitude. Engagements broken in upon by the death of a near relative of one of the parties had been often carried out in a subdued form with no longer delay. Charlotte's station was now at hand. She bade him farewell, and he rattled on to the building he had come to inspect, and next to Budmouth, where he intended to cross the channel by steamboat that night. He hardly knew how the evening passed away. He had taken up his quarters at an inn near the quay, and as the night drew on he stood gazing from the coffee-room window at the steamer outside, which nearly thrust its spars through the bedroom casements, and at the goods that were being tumbled on board, as any shippers can tumble them. All the goods were laden, a lamp was put on each side of the gangway, the engines broke into a crackling roar, and people began to enter. They were only waiting for the last train, then they would be off. Still Somerset did not move. He was thinking of that curious half-told story of Charlotte's, 
about a telegram to Paula for money from Nice. Not once, till within the last half hour, had it recurred to his mind that he had met Dare both at Nice and at Monte Carlo, that at the latter place he had been absolutely out of money and wished to borrow, showing considerable sinister feeling when Somerset declined to lend, that on one or two previous occasions he had reasons for doubting Dare's probity, and that in spite of the young man's impoverishment at Monte Carlo, he had, a few days later, beheld him in shining raiment at Karlsruhe. Somerset, though misty in his conjectures, was seized with a growing conjecture that there was something in Mr. Stancy's allusion to the telegram which ought to be explained. He felt an insurmountable objection to cross the water that night, or till he had been able to see Charlotte again and learned more of her meaning. He countermanded the order to put his luggage on board, watched the steamer out of the harbour, and went to bed. He might as well have gone to battle for any rest that he got. On rising the next morning he felt rather blank, though nonetheless convinced that a matter required investigation. He left Budmouth by a morning train, and at about eleven o'clock found himself in Markton. The momentum of a practical inquiry took him through that ancient borough without leaving him much leisure for those reveries which had yesterday lent an unutterable sadness to every object there. It was just before noon that he started for the castle, intending to arrive at the time of the morning when, as he knew from experience, he could speak to Charlotte without difficulty. The rising ground soon revealed the old towers to him, and, jutting out behind them, the scaffoldings for the new wing. While halting here on the knoll, in some doubt about his movements, he beheld a man coming along the road, and was soon confronted by his former competitor, Hevel. The first instinct of each was to pass with a nod, but a second instinct for intercourse was sufficient to bring them to a halt. After a few superficial words had been spoken, Somerset said, You have succeeded me. I have, said Hevel, but little to my advantage. I have just heard that my commission is to extend no further than roofing in the wing that you began, and had I known that before, I would have seen the castle fall flat as Jericho before I would have accepted the superintendence. But I know who I have to thank for that. Does Stancy? Somerset still looked towards the distant battlements. On the scaffolding, among the white-jacketed workmen, he could discern one figure in a dark suit. "'You have a clerk of the works, I see,' he observed. "'Nominally I have, but practically I haven't.' "'Then why do you keep him?' "'I can't help myself. He is Mr. Dare, and having been recommended by a higher power than I, there he must stay in spite of me.' "'Who recommended him?' "'The same, de Stancy.' "'Very odd,' murmured Somerset. But that young man is the object of my visit. You'd better leave him alone, said Havel dryly. Somerset asked why. Since I call no man master over that way, I will inform you. Havel then related in splenetic tones, to which Somerset did not care to listen till the story began to advance itself, how he had passed the night with Dare at the inn, and the incidents of that night, relating how he had seen some letters on the young man's breast which long had puzzled him. They were an E, a T, an N, and a C. I thought of them long, till it eventually occurred to me that the word when filled out was distancy, and that kinship explains the offensive and defensive alliance between them. Oh, good heavens, man, said Somerset, more and more disturbed. Does she know of it? You may depend she does not yet, but she will soon enough. Hark, there it is. 
the notes of the castle clock were heard striking noon. Then it is all over. What, not their marriage? Yes, didn't you know it was the wedding day? They were to be at the church at half-past eleven. I should have waited to see her go, but it was no sight to hinder business for, as she was only going to drive over in her brougham with Mr. Stancy. My errand has failed, said Somerset, turning on his heel. I'll walk back to town with you. However, he did not walk far with Havel. Society was too much at that moment. As soon as opportunity offered, he branched from the road by a path, and, avoiding the town, went by railway to Budmouth, whence he resumed, by the night steamer, his journey to Normandy. End of Book the Fifth, Part Twelve